Live from Washington, D.C., it's Quintessential Listening, Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. The person I have as my special guest is literally a man for all seasons. His name is Stephen C. Pollock. In addition to being an acclaimed poet and author, he's also a physician and formerly chief of neuro-ophthalmology at Duke University, a retired university professor, a researcher, and a businessman. This evening, he will read from his new poetry collection, Exits, which was published by Wintry Press. Stephen, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for inviting me. All right. Let's begin this poetic journey. What is poetry? Michael, that is a question for the ages. I'm guessing there are as many definitions of poetry as there are poets on the planet. But that said, I am more than happy to share my take on this topic. My definition of poetry actually has two components. One that's very brief and a second that elaborates on the first. The brief definition is language art, by which I mean an art form that uses words as its basic building blocks. This is somewhat analogous to notes in music or color in painting. However, while a given musical note has a pitch, it has no meaning. It only acquires meaning in the context of other notes. Similarly, a given color has wavelength, but in isolation, it too has no meaning. Words, by contrast, are marinated in meaning. They're saturated with it. The meaning of a word includes its dictionary definitions, its connotations, and the nuances that derive from its etymology. Also, words are more complex than either notes or colors. Each has a unique sequence of letters, a syllabic structure, a set of consonants and vowel sounds, and characteristic inflections. One can make a compelling argument that the fundamental elements of poetry are vastly more complex than those of other art forms. However, while language art is a necessary part of the definition of poetry, it's not sufficient. I say that because it doesn't differentiate between poetry and prose. Prose also uses words as its basic building blocks often in artistic ways. Michael, if you'll indulge me, I'll take a moment to expand on my brief definition of poetry. Please. My expanded definition focuses on three qualities that distinguish most poetry from most prose. The first of these is compression. 
By compression, I'm not referring to the fact that poems are relatively short or that they're broken up into lines. What I mean by compression is that more is going on in a line of poetry, making the line more dense and more intense. The use of metaphor and ambiguity create multiple layers of meaning, whereas prose tends to communicate information in a more direct way. In addition, sonic effects such as rhyme, meter, non-metrical rhythms, and onomatopoeia are common in lines of poetry. The second distinguishing feature of poetry is that it often proceeds from the particular to the universal. And finally, poetry is freed from the logical and linear constraints of most prose, allowing for surprising associations and unexpected connections. The reader of poetry is welcomed into a world of intuitive thinking where it's possible to get close to truths that simply can't be expressed in prose. Stephen, I'd like you to expound more in terms of your expanded definition on number two. That would be proceeding from the particular to the universal. Yes. It's not unique to poetry, but it is a common feature of many poems where an observation of an object or a simple idea ultimately leads to some greater truth. And it's often said that poems are capable of approaching what really can't be said in prose. It's not that you can explain all the mysteries of life or the meaning of existence or even the presence of a deity, but you can get much closer in poetry through indirect methods and through metaphor than you can in prose. Tell me more about your view of poetry from your heart. Because when you talk about the particular to the universal, to, for me, there's an emotional component in that. First of all, I, I have to agree with you that sort of understanding of things that are mysterious, things that are ineffable, is more related to the heart than it is to some kind of logical analysis. But when I think of poetry from the heart, I tend to think of poetry of a more personal nature. It often expresses feelings, emotions, and certainly passion. And there's a sense of authenticity about poetry from the heart as well, especially with respect to confessional poems and poetry. Now, when I consider my own work, I tend to think of it in terms of craft as poetry of the mind. All right. But that's not always true. Several of my poems, such as Leaves and Steve's Balloons, definitely originated in the heart. 
Very nice. Thank you. Now, knowing what you know about poetry, is poetry important? To answer that question, I think we also need to consider for whom poetry is important. Because there are several different parties to consider. And the first is society. Poetry is vitally important for society, in my view. It helps to show the interconnectedness of people across the globe by affording insight into shared aspects of the human condition. It also describes the experiences of those with different backgrounds, which can't help but nurture empathy. And it can expose suffering and injustice in powerful ways. So there's no question that poetry has an important role in society. For poets, of course, it's an important medium for self-expression and an opportunity to create lasting art. And finally, for readers, um, they derive from poetry enjoyment of both the content and the craft. They get new perspectives on familiar topics and they are afforded a literary venue for exploring and contemplating questions that range from philosophy to religion, from morality to justice. So I think one can uh, make a compelling argument that poetry is important for all three groups. Very nice. Please share with me an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power. Michael, I've had three such experiences that come to mind. And um, each of them was quite different. The first occurred when I was an undergraduate and I had just discovered the poem Fern Hill by Dylan Thomas. And I wanted to read it to my girlfriend. And so I did. And I read through the poem and at the very end, I broke down in tears. And it was because the words and the poem were was so beautiful. And I was really overcome with emotion because of a poem, because of words on a page and by performing those words. So that was probably my first experience experience where I realized just how much power poetry has for someone who really loves the art form. The second was my first attempt to write a serious poem. I was also an undergraduate, but now in my last semester, and for some reason, I had an impulse to begin writing a poem on a metaphysical topic. And 
I became completely engrossed in it and stopped attending classes and isolated myself from friends, ate and slept reluctantly and spent five straight weeks writing a poem on the difference between subjective and objective reality. And that was my first serious attempt at, at writing poetry. In retrospect, I tend to describe it as an act of love masquerading as mania. <laughs> but I, it was not a manic episode. It was truly something that I had to do, and I did it to the exclusion of every other aspect of my life at the time. And then the third experience I had was relatively recently in 2021 when President Biden was inaugurated. And I'm sure you'll remember listening to Amanda Gorman read The Hill We Climb. Um, that was an incredibly powerful performance. So much so that if you think back on that experience and try to remember any of the other performers who uh, performed at the inauguration, you probably won't be able to remember them because Ms. Gorman's performance was so compelling, so dominant, and so brilliant. Um, that's really all we remember of the inauguration. Uh, I don't think there has ever been a poet who's had that kind of impact at uh, a presidential inauguration. Thank you. Her work was exceptionally powerful. Now, Stephen, do you come from a literary background? I don't, although I would say that my college certainly nurtured writing abilities. Um, uh, it was Amherst College and Sometimes it's referred to as the writing college because there is such an emphasis on developing not only critical thinking and creativity, but also writing skills. And so I think that background helped. But that would be the literary background that I have is pretty much at Amherst. And that's the only place where I took poetry courses. I took four poetry courses during my undergraduate years, but never pursued an MFA or participated in writing workshops or writing conferences because right after Amherst, I went into medical school and didn't have the opportunity to pursue any other training in, in poetry. Now, what are some of the predominant themes of your work? Let me mention that nearly all of the poems that appear in Exits were written between 2003 and 2021 before the idea of authoring a book ever came to mind. And about two years ago, I decided to incorporate what I considered to be my best work into a book called Line Drawings, 
However, during the process of selecting those poems, I noticed that a substantial number were related to various aspects of mortality. And this led me to curate a more concise collection and Exits was born. Now, as I mentioned, the collection explores the theme of human mortality. So it touches on life's transience, the cycles of nature, and how the inevitability of death influences each person's search for meaning in their life. It also hints at the potential for renewal. Now, in retrospect, I think that this focus on the finite nature of our biological selves derived from several sources. First, I was raised without any religious training. So from a very young age, I was left on my own to ponder the enormity of the universe, time and eternity, and the meaning of existence. I remember being terrified in bed as a five-year-old of infinity and the possibility of death because I had no answers that had been given to me. I was probably the world's youngest existentialist. Secondly, as a physician and a neuroophthalmologist, I cared for many patients with life-threatening diseases and many patients who ended up having fatal diseases. And so that couldn't help but influence my understanding of death and my empathy for people who have serious illnesses. And finally, I've actually been on the patient side of things myself. For the last 24 years, I've had the spinal cord variant of multiple sclerosis or MS. And as a result, I have partial paralysis of my right leg. The good news is that I can still ambulate with a walker and get around the house, but MS does influence life expectancy and that probably plays into the focus on mortality as well. I can understand. Stephen, please share a poem. I'm happy to. Michael, this is a poem based on something I saw while I was driving through an economically depressed area in rural North Carolina. The scene that I saw told a story and it was a story that was so sad, it almost brought tears to my eyes. The title of the poem is Steve's Balloons. In our dreams are like balloons, light and round and always rising. As I drove through Haw River, a one church town in the south, I caught a glimpse of their maker and stopped to reflect. The store was boarded up, its gravel parking lot weedy 
and empty of cars. And I saw where plastic letters had been taken down from the faded roof, leaving a less faded stencil of the words, Steve's Balloons. He must have grown up here, this namesake of mine, amid these rural ruins, the porches in disrepair, the cracked pavement and telephone poles, and the strip mall the locals regard as their special version of Eden. I imagine the boyish optimism that inflated his hopes and buoyed his faith that a worn and weary town would find perpetual cause to celebrate. I saw then that balloons are not at all round, but are shaped like tears, that a dream is not so much that scrap of rubber on the ground as the breath that once filled it. Thank you. Do you view yourself as being more of a storyteller or wordsmith? The latter. I would say much more of a wordsmith. There are some poems that have a narrative quality to them, Mm -hmm. such as the one that I just read. But in many of my poems, I'm focused on craft and making the most beautiful piece of art that I can, as opposed to relating a story or an experience that occurred. Stephen, all great writers have great writing influences. Who are some of yours? What makes them great in your eyes? I've always been more inspired by great poems than by the poets who wrote them. But that said, the poems of Elizabeth Bishop, Emily Dickinson, Robert Frost, T.S. Eliot, Dylan Thomas, Sylvia Plath, and John Donne have been among my most powerful influences. And all, I'm sure, for different reasons, since they represent a variety of styles. So do you view your ability to write a creative gift or creative art? I don't think that it's a gift. In fact, I actually don't think that poets are all that much different from other people. They represent every demographic group, every socioeconomic level, and every slice of American culture. Some poets live lives of privilege, while others write poems from prison. I doubt that poets are distinguished by some kind of innate facility or skill that's inborn, and that applies to me as well. It seems much more likely that individuals who love words and who are in awe of the way in which poems reinvigorate the language learn to write poetry because they feel compelled to do so. I I really do think that 
it's learned. Now, during our talk so far, you've mentioned the word empathy at least twice. Based on your own lived experience, what is empathy and how are you able to manifest empathy in your writing? I don't set out to do that at the start. But empathy, from my view, is the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, understand what they're going through, and to some extent even have the feelings that they're having, even though you're not having the experience that they're having. So that would be my definition of empathy, but it's not what I actually set out to accomplish when I'm writing a poem. The poems come from places that I don't really understand. Sometimes it's an observation of something in nature that seems to have metaphorical value. Sometimes it's a dream. Sometimes it's compelling or a disturbing personal experience that I have. And more often than not, the impulse to write a poem derives from some idea or concept that just percolates up from the subconscious into, into the mind. And so I don't actually begin with an agenda. And so to get back to your original question, do I write poetry to exemplify or to accomplish empathy? No, but does that sometimes happen in the course of writing the poem? I would have to say, yes, it, it does. The title of your book is Exits, which is quite striking. Tell me about the title and its purpose. Exits or an exit is a departure. It's an act of leaving. And it also can be a passageway from one place. The title is plural because the book addresses many different kinds of endings. Disease and decline, death and remembrance, and it looks at those things from various perspectives. So that's where the title emanated from. The cover is quite striking too. How was it created? Ooh, that's a very interesting question. And one that I'm delighted to answer because I designed the cover. I knew that I wanted something to express the content of the book. And so I accessed some royalty-free websites where you can get stock photos. And I put in search terms like death and mortality. And unfortunately, it turned up mostly pictures of the Grim Reaper or skeletons, things that were more appropriate for a Halloween 
party or something like that. But when I saw this photograph of a bare tree, the ambiguity really struck me. Was this tree dead or was it simply dormant in winter? The sky is threatening. Is there going to be a storm or not? So I selected that photograph and then cropped it to a six by nine format and altered some of the, the contrast and brightness. And then I chose, of course, the title and the font style, which is Adobe Caslon Pro, a newer form of a font that was designed in the 18th century, and then had to position the title and determine where the author's name would go and also the subtitle. Now, the interesting thing about the cover is that you look at it and think that the letters are white, but they're not. They are all shades of gray and each letter is a different shade of gray because the clouds become darker toward the right of the book. And I wanted the contrast to remain the same and create the illusion that all the letters were the same. And so each letter actually gets a little darker gray to the right so that the contrast will stay the same and create the illusion of uniform letters. Well, thank you for sharing. <laughs> now, please share a poem. Ah, I'm delighted to. And this is the first poem in the collection. It's a poem in six parts. In each part, a spider web serves as a metaphor for the ways in which people cope with the prospect of death. The word arachnidea is actually a made up word derived from the root arachne for spider or spider web. The secondary title, line drawings, weaves together three strands of meaning, the lines of a web, lines of poetry, and renderings in pen and ink, which refer to the visual imagery that's throughout the poem. So it's entitled Arachnidea, Line Drawings, Part One. Extravagance at dawn, your finest threads are strung with pearls, and you, a brooch with a clasp. Magnify the shiny spheres to divine that each conceals a miniature, an image of struggling wings, of life undone. Pass at the critical angle, and they flash and snap in the sun. Part two. These haunts are hung haphazardly with votive offerings, each sucked dry, paper mache sarcophagi, cruel chrysalis for moth or butterfly. Part three. 
serial killer, insecticide, the skill in which you specialize. Can we call it murder if nerves connect, not to brain, but to canister, chain, and gear? If the dumb drive to survive directs your every move? Or is it fear that fuels your addiction to others' pain? A numbness spreading through the vein as you rehearse again this ritual play, bind and consume in your quick kinetic way. Part four. A stickler for particulars. You're helpless to repel the pull of perpendicular, the lure of parallel. Do lines and circles insulate? Can order keep at bay? The random drafts that propagate contagion, death, decay? The chords are taut. You draw control from patterns meant to thwart unraveling, but the tension takes its toll on the mental weft and warp. Part five. A concert in the round. Divertimenti scored for eight short hands will be played by the maestro for adoring fans. The fine fretwork glistens. The strings tune and go still. Once in motion, you dazzle in the parts for pizzicato. Leap with ease over fourths and fifths. Scuttle up scales to a dizzying height, then plummet by octaves to the sublime. All are amused for a time. The circle is crossed by chords, point to counterpoint, illusions of balance, of words. Listen to the last mournful strains murmuring a requiem for the days. Part six. The hours molt and fall away. The year grows late. Your web's worn watch face ticks in whispers, and you pray that you will hibernate but briefly and somehow wake. As if by grace, the breaths of winter fog the pains, leave no trace of love or joy or even hate. There are, in the end, only the frayed strands of time, the failing light, and you, splayed at the center, condemned to wait. Thank you. As I listen to you, it seems as if happiness and joy are at one end of the spectrum, and that the other end is death, mortality, decay. And it makes me wonder, does it hurt you to write poetry? If not, why not? It does not hurt at all. 
in fact, when I'm working on a poem and a line comes together, regardless of the subject matter, I get a sense of euphoria verging on ecstasy. It's a joyful experience, even when I'm writing about topics that might be considered morbid or ominous or sad. I've thought about how Sylvia Plath may have felt when she wrote Ariel, her most famous collection of poems, which she penned in about 60 days before her suicide. And one might think that she was in a state of despair when she wrote that, but it's it's my bet that regardless of her overall mood and her downward trajectory, I think that whenever she finished one of those poems or got one of the lines, I think there was also a feeling of ecstasy, even in the context of her depression and decline. We're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back. a poem know where to go? Do you lead or does it lead you? In the best possible circumstance, the poem should lead. It's the hardest thing to do, though, especially for someone like me who normally operates in a logical and analytical way. There's this strong tendency to want to have everything put together beforehand to almost outline the poem and to know where it's going. But I don't think that is the way to write the best poetry. I think you have to allow yourself the leeway to move in the direction that the poem wants you to move. And that may involve just allowing certain associations and connections to be made that you weren't thinking of ahead of time. But poems that are thought out too much and are planned in advance I think are too pat and they're much less likely to do what we were talking about before, which is to approach 
truths that are almost unknowable and unsayable, but poetry as opposed to prose can get the reader close Mm. and provide some intuition about those greater questions that all of us have. And to answer your question, I think the poem should lead, but it doesn't always. There's always that tendency to want to over-engineer ahead of time. Has a poem you've written ever humbled or frightened you? I find that the poem War Crimes, which is in the collection, is disturbing. At the beginning of that poem, a five-year-old boy uses a magnifying glass to burn a hole in the wing of a living butterfly. The poem then juxtaposes this act of cruelty with some of the worst atrocities in human history. Now, why would that frighten me or be disturbing? The the butterfly image that prompted me to put pencil to paper fluttered into my consciousness when I was in that kaleidoscopic state between sleep and wakefulness. And I've always hoped that it was just a free-floating fragment of a dream. But my fear is that it may, in fact, have been a memory of something that actually happened. Would you be willing to share the poem? Yes, I certainly would. Michael, this poem is an example of how poems can move from a particular observation or experience to a universal truth, which is something we touched on earlier. The title of the poem is War Crimes. That spring, when I was five, I burned a hole in the wing of a butterfly, not deceased, but alive and whole and wanting to be released. Neither magnified views of iridescence nor the presence of veins or hues captured my interest or sight. Instead, I opted to use the glass to weaponize rays of light, holding it exactly one focal length from a wing meant to beat, focusing the sun and ungodly heat. And because I held the insect tight, the straining muscles of flight caused its body to writhe from within. And despite my hold, the free wing tried its best to fold over and shield its tortured twin. I recall the blister of flame and the wisp of smoke swirling up from that child's game or joke. I could not have known that day of bodies burned, of lives lost, or mused how cruelty and war were seared in our DNA, could not have seen what came before, the camps, the gas, the Holocaust, 
Tutsi corpses stacked in piles. Lynchings like carnivals greeted with grins. The killing fields, the Salem trials. A village bombed, a child's limb. My parents asserted compliance with norms without apology. He's just too young to fathom pain. It highlights his love of science, born with a brain for entomology. In that vein, the man and woman who raised me offered every excuse one might contrive, but none of any use. The horror was human and the fact that I was five. Thank you. That's an incredibly powerful piece. And it brings up a question, Stephen. So much is happening in our world. There's the good, the bad, the ugly, as well as the indifferent. What do you view as being the role of a poet in modern day society? The glib answer is always to create great art. But in a world that seems to be splitting apart, a world where inequality and racial discrimination persist, a world in which pandemics and climate change threaten our very existence, many poets have chosen to commit their work to a greater purpose, to bear witness, to decry cruelty and injustice where it exists, and to be passionate agents for change. Because we know that there is so much happening in our world, as poets, are we required to write about it? Or can we just write about rocks or flowers or trees are we required to write about the issues of today? I don't think that a poet should be required to do that. I think that a poet who focuses on the art form is doing what they do. But if you ask the question in a different way, am I inspired by poets who have chosen to be advocates for change, who have chosen to bear witness to the wrongs that are occurring in the world, then my answer would be an unequivocal yes. Thank you. They say that to see the world with complete honesty, one should look to comedians, artists, musicians, and poets what do you think emerges naturally, Stephen, from your work? What emerges from you? What a wonderful question and a very difficult one. I think the surprise for me was when I was reviewing my, my work over a 20-year period, and there was that sudden realization that there was a theme there that that I hadn't realized. And that theme was mortality and the issues surrounding it. 
but also the cycles of nature and even the potential for renewal. And I think that's what comes out of my poetry. I have other poems that don't fall along those lines and were not included in exits. But I think the most powerful and compelling messages and feelings and perspectives that come out of my work relate to those that surround the possibility of our demise. Please share a poem. This poem (laughs) was the next one in my stack, but it happens to fit right in with what we were just talking about. This is a sonnet that's entitled Seeds, and it was prompted by two experiences. One was the death of my father's closest friend last year at age 96. And the second was an observation out of my window of a goldfinch plucking seeds from a wilted coneflower. I know that our main topics today don't involve formal elements, but it may interest some of your listeners that the formal elements in this sonnet are more stringent than those in a typical English sonnet. There's only two rhymes, so one is used six times and one is used eight times. And the poem is syllabic, so there are 10 syllables to each of the 14 lines. And that creates a certain challenge for fluency, diction, and syntax. The title is Seeds. A goldfinch whose yellow rivals the sun could cull any bloom this garden has grown, yet favored a flowering long past blown. Its petals shrivel, stem brittle and done in a coneflower patch where just this one seemed to wither wilt and ask to be mown. The bird plucked the seeds ensconced in the cone, made it sway the way that metronomes run till time runs out, till the goldfinch has flown. One flower spent, the perennials sown, a fate conceived by the dying and done, though death, it said, may breed oblivion. So many seeds were born by each alone, so many lost with loss of those I've known. Thank you. That was beautiful. Formal elements also bring up questions about accessibility. What I'd like to know from you is, Should one employ a lot of mental energy to solve a poem? In my view, as I've mentioned, poems are works of art. They're not puzzles or problems to be, quote, solved. I actually think it's a shame that 
poetry is often taught that way in high schools and colleges, as if poets deliberately write in some kind of code and readers are required to decipher it or find a key to unlock the hidden meaning. Mm. The truth is that everything the reader needs is there on the page, and they simply need to engage with the words and become comfortable with the surprising juxtapositions, the ambiguities, and the strange dreamlike ways in which poems move the mind. Stephen, please share a poem. This is a poem that doesn't need to be solved. It's one of my more accessible ones, and it's a poem from the heart. So I hope you'll enjoy it. It's written as an elegy for my wife's grandmother, who was a remarkable person whom I had the good fortune to get to know in her later years. In fact, at the family's request, it was read at her memorial service in Hawaii. The title of the poem is Leaves, and the um, epigraph is for Shanao Matsumoto. At 91, she still liked to arrange things just kept her possessions in tidy boxes, some engraved with Asian motifs, dragonflies, exotic birds, and leaves of bamboo. And how she loved her sumo to watch on the Japanese channel Rikishi ten times her size, colliding like forces of nature, filled her with a sense of nostalgia and possibility. She was the venerable priestess of tea. In the autumn of her age, faithful to the rituals of a dying art, she distilled from the parched leaves this pure nectar green as youth. Flowers found perfection in her hands, wrinkled hands with fingers like twigs. Once, perhaps, as she trimmed the leaves, she remembered a time when she was that perfect flower, blooming in her kimono of peach and green. Her family arranged a simple Buddhist ceremony. In late November, the trees were mostly bare. But across the lawn, beyond the small gathering and the somber stones, the leaves all danced in the air. Thank you. Another beautiful piece. Some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature, Stephen. Once it's out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it, while others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on the editing process? My approach to editing is intense and merciless. It begins while I'm writing. 
I try to occupy a mental space where sounds and rhymes and rhythms and ideas and metaphorical possibilities freely and continuously enter the mind while at the same time I apply critical filters to filter out the 99.9% of material that's not helpful or useful to the poem. So editing begins during the writing process. And I might digress and say that typically, even though I may have a dozen or so pages of drafts in a day, the number of lines that I typically produce in a day is four on average. So quite a bit of editing occurs right at the time when I'm writing. But editing often over months or years is critical to achieving the desired outcome. I've learned that a satisfying first draft almost always begins to exhibit its flaws after sufficient time has elapsed to afford an objective assessment. And I'll give you an example. The eight-line poem in Exits called Eclipse underwent 19 revisions over as many years. Are you hoping that Exits resonates with a broad range of readers, or are you targeting a specific audience? I'm the initial reader, and I'm really not thinking at all about the public or about how other poets might receive the work. It's really a personal effort to produce the best art that I'm capable of. Now, that said, I would be delighted if readers responded positively to the work. And I never know if that's going to be the case, but I've been a bit humbled by the fact that the initial reviews of exits have been extraordinary. And it appears that that the poems do connect with a broader audience, although that was never the intent. What would it be if you were to give your readers advice before they read exits? What would you tell them? I would advise them to read the book in the way they normally would approach poetry, but with the caveat that they may want to spend adequate time with each poem. I don't think that the collection lends itself to a quick read. I think that a reader will get more out of it if they were to move through the poems at a more, I wouldn't say leisurely, but an unhurried manner. On the book's website, there are some essays on certain of the poems. 
And if a reader is interested, they can, of course, access those. But I wouldn't advise doing that ahead of time. And the reason is that those close readings that comprise the essays are really my take on the poem. And the last thing in the world I would want is to influence or bias the reader's experience of the poems. To the extent that a reader does want to learn more about them, those essays or commentaries are available, but I would approach those afterwards so that the reader has the luxury of enjoying their own interpretation of what's going on. Thank you. We'll take a brief break and we'll be right back. We are back. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Stephen C. Pollock. Stephen, my question to you is, what do you think your work conveys about the human condition? The main thing that it conveys is that death is the one common attribute of the human condition. It's something that affects all of us and it influences our perspective on our lives and it also influences our search for meaning, which I think is something that all humans share. Stephen, we've reached what I view as being my favorite part of the episode. I view it as being a mini poetry concert. This is an opportunity for you to share three of your works back to back without interruption. Please, Stephen, you're on the stage. Thank you. Michael, I actually have three poems that I'd like to share. So that worked out perfectly. Syringe is a poem that plays with etymology, a Greek myth, and neurologic disease. It was shortlisted for the 2018 Live Canon International Poetry Competition and was performed at the awards ceremony held at the Greenwich Theater in London. It also was published in that year's Live Canon Anthology. The title is Syringe and the 
epigraph reads as follows. Syrinx was a chaste water nymph who, pursued by Pan, was mercifully transformed into hollow reeds. By all accounts, she knew nothing of multiple sclerosis. Part 1 These marks, my metric of defiance and decline, gauge a meniscus as the lumen fills with fresh platoons of synthetic drug, game as ever to deploy. But what draws my eye this time is the glint of syringe, that crack in the slats where sun leaks through. I pry the blinds, peer in. Part two. As if the brain were lit by a strobe, flickering between real and not, between now and some taproot of time, as if the temporal lobe had seized on this pool in the skin, this fluid lens, and telescoped instead to a pond near woods, with frogs and nymphs and fish, and by the water's edge, a stand of reeds, horsetail, I surmise, cauda equina, piercing the surface like needles. No plunger drives the sun to its zenith, retracts the shadows of trees, pressures the breeze to be wind, nor does the mind, which thinks it sees the white coats of birches, but is more akin to that orange disk climbing through branches, synaptic in all the circuitry. Nights, when ripples are obsidian, the moon spills across the surface, scatters a flotilla of lights whose oily spangles buoy, conjoin, yet always part. And here, in that timeless dark, Syrinx appears, a synthesis of moons, sheathed in halos of myelin film, the flutings whirled around her waist like petals, that place where now she glides an arm, the wrist turned in and effortlessly loosens the ties that linens might slip from her skin. Part three. This bloating sloughs like fat off bone. I return to burned out husks, the columns collapsed, the cry of syllables huddled in shelters, each vowel a child dragging its feet. Where wires are down, a wireless crackles, and static animates the screen, save for this glimpse of a green frog in my fist, and the teacher saying, insert the needle here, between the vertebrae, then wiggle back and forth to pith the cord. My reeds become water, my memories 
myth. Thank you. Do you think you were meant to be a poet? I don't. I think I was fortunate to find poetry. And I don't know how I developed my understanding of the art form, but somehow that happened through reading poetry beginning in my teenage years. And I'm very grateful that it's a skill that I've developed, but it wasn't preordained. What surprises you most about being a poet? The fact that I'm able to write at all. Although I did take four poetry courses as an undergraduate, I may have mentioned earlier that all of them were literary and that I've never actually taken a creative writing course or enrolled in postgraduate training in poetry. In addition, there was a 26-year hiatus from poetry that was imposed by my all-consuming medical career. And yet, I've somehow emerged from that with the ability to work with the art form and to produce work that I'm satisfied with. That's probably what surprises me most is that I can do this despite the lack of formal training. What did you learn about yourself writing exits? When I began writing the poems that comprised the book, I actually didn't have the book in mind, but I learned a couple of things. First of all, I think that I realized that I had this ability to express myself through poetry. I learned that I am completely undisciplined when it comes to writing. We haven't talked about process, but I don't have a set writing schedule. And unlike many poets, I don't have the ability to sit down at my desk every day and call forth ideas or experiences that can serve as the basis for poems. And I guess that means that I wait for lightning to strike. (laughs) And it means that I never really know when the next poem is going to materialize. So I've learned that about myself as well, that I'm a Uh, a very undisciplined writer. But when I do begin to write, then I do become incredibly focused Mm -hmm. and very intense. 
And at that point, I don't let anything interfere with the writing process. Where can exits be purchased? It's available in paperback at Barnes and Noble, at bookshop.com, Amazon. Amazon. And then the ebook is also available at Amazon and at most other major retailers. Stephen, where do you go from here? What's next for you creatively? I hope to read more poems because during this whole process of putting together the book and uh, publishing it, I haven't had as much time to read and become inspired as I would like, but that's what I think is in the future is a lot of reading. And my hope is that will result in getting more into poetic mode and starting to write again, which would be the ideal option. I'm not counting on putting together another book, but who knows? All right. Thank you. I'd like to thank you for being my guest. You're a remarkable man. You're a remarkable writer. And I go back to manifesting empathy, although that was not your goal. But as a listener, you were able to do it because I felt what you were saying in your work. And again, that was not your goal, but you were able to manifest empathy. And I commend you for that. That's great to hear. I really appreciate your sharing that. Yes, it's true. So again, I'd like to thank you for being with me. Thank you. It's it's been a, a pleasure and truly an honor to be with you. So thank you so much. You're more than welcome. And to the listening audience, as I share with you every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.